Welcome to What's Not Priced In, a weekly investor podcast by Fattail Investment Research. In a world of confusion and rapid change, experts Kirill Prakopenka and Greg Canavan look behind the headlines to unveil the hidden opportunities within the Australian stock market. Now, let's dive in to today's episode. Senator Alex Antich, thanks very much for joining us today. Greg, thanks for having me. Great to be here. So we're here to talk about uh, Australia's energy transition, uh, and it does feel like the tide is turning a little bit in terms of public support uh, for the energy transition. Previously, um, as we saw in the election uh, last year, was very widely supported. Uh, climate change seems to be a, seem to be a big concern for the electorate, but we're now seeing the costs of that come through and the tide is turning, I think, in, in terms of the public opinion. But you've been against this for some time. So maybe we could just start with your position on this and why you have been a critic of the energy transition from the start. Yeah, look, I have, Greg, and thanks. It's a, it's a massive topic, isn't it? But it, it, it is, is probably as central to the Australian political debate as anything is at the moment for a range of reasons. I mean, at least the first one would be the cost of living issues. I think this, if, if anything, could be... Um, centred on the, one of the main sort of drivers of the cost of living crisis. I think it's probably this one it sort of fuels everything, doesn't it? The cost of energy, it's sort of, you know, really the, the, the apex of it all. So uh, it's a massive issue. Um, it's one that sadly, the other side of the chamber in this place here say, uh, you know, the, the kind of call it the kind of climate wars. Uh, I always say, it's, I mean, they started it, you know, it's like defending a stable cost-effective and, uh, you know, reliable grid really shouldn't be seen as being something that's uh, a luxury. It should just be something that people take for granted. Certainly when I was a, a kid, when I was a boy growing up in the 80s, I, I never really thought about this sort of stuff. And no one did. Power was cheap. It, the lights almost never went off. Um, and so it always struck me politically what it would take for people to understand the damage that's being done to the Australian uh, economic situation and the energy infrastructure almost by stealth under the cover of this, uh, you know, this kind of climate alarmism. And I, I think sadly, and I, and I really don't take any joy from this at all, in fact, quite the opposite, I think the, the rising cost of power is going to be the thing that's really going to drive this. Uh, around this place, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I feel as though sometimes this building, and I say it all the time, is a little bit like, you know, they call it a bubble Canberra and Parliament House, but it's more like a concrete reinforced bunker. The, the, the sort of real world issues and the fact that cost of living issues are biting sort of is only just breaking through the surface here. Um, and, you know, the, these issues, I think they frighten people off. The, the scare campaign on climate has been so effective over the last probably almost, really almost 15 years now and more uh, that uh, it's, a, it's a real scare for politics. But I am sensing, as you said in the intro there, I am sensing that the, the sands are shifting a little bit. And I think that's economic driven. I think that it has to be. It always is people's back pocket is uh, the thing that will motivate their interests and uh, motivate their voting patterns. So we've got to push on. We've got to push away from, uh, uh, you know, continuing to destroy the grid. And and you mentioned there the, the cost of living, and we just saw with the inflation data that came out uh, just last week, it showed that electricity costs increased by 6% in the month of July alone, and that would have been nearly 20% if not for the subsidies that have been paid to try to keep those costs down. So clearly this stuff is starting to bite. From yeah. a, 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 a politician's perspective, what are you hearing from the person on the street? Is this becoming more of an issue? Because as you said, the basis of politics is 
um, is the middle class being squeezed and is uh, cost of living issues are always at, at the forefront. And, and I think this is the, the trigger that is going to get people waking up to the fact that this is going to be a very costly transition and the government won't be paying for it. It will be the people that eventually foot the bill. Yeah, look, I think it is. Certainly people I speak to are starting to, you know, really make these points. They have been for a long time, though, when you think about it. I mean, this is we were hearing about the radical increase in cost of power more than 10 years ago, and we were all feeling it as well. Um, but it does feel like over the last six months, 12 to six months, things have really, really exacerbated. And, you know, I think the sorts of savings nest eggs that businesses were, were keeping and that people were keeping are now starting to sadly dry up as a result of all of these cost pressures. Um, and they are starting to poke their head above the parapet in terms of a political issue, you know, sort of a, a, an on-the-street political issue. Um, you know, around where I live in Adelaide, I, I see a whole heap of climate action now signs on, the, you know, on fences, very effective campaign that's been sent out into those suburbs. You know, they're, they're nice suburbs. They're, um, you know, re relatively, uh, you know, kind of um, well-to-do middle class, but, you know, nice places. And they are uh, all, um, you know, I think, in a sense, I think they feel like they're doing the right thing. You know, they've all believed that we're somehow in the middle of a climate emergency and we've got to act. But, you know, it's a question of how long it takes for those signs to come down and for people to make the join the dots. And that's the job of people like myself. And, you know, I suspect that, that some of the work you're doing as well is to try to show people the very real back pocket costs of what we're doing. Uh, Professor Plymer um, made the point uh, when he came and spoke to me recently, that, that this was a little bit like the, uh, you know, the tulip bulb revolution in the in the, you know, in, in Holland in the 1600s, I think it was or thereabouts. I probably got the dates yep. wrong. Uh, it's the same principle. I, I said to him, what, "Where do we go now if we uh, if we continue to find this?" And he just said one word: bankruptcy. And it wouldn't. That's you know clearly the way we're going, and we'll get to some, maybe some of the discussion about the economics of it shortly. But I first wanted to just ask. Or if you could give us some insight into the politics behind this, because we are going down a hugely expensive path. And if we look at the history of energy transitions, normally the market drives those transitions and it's driven by a need or a desire to, to move to more efficient energy systems. And we are effectively backpedaling here and moving to a, a more inefficient system of capturing energy via renewables, which are intermittent. You have to build obviously extensive transmission systems to capture and distribute that energy. It seems like we're going down this path without a rational debate about the costs of this. And we are, the debate always centers around an emotional debate about mm. a climate catastrophe and we have to do it at any cost. And that's ignoring the fact that Australia's emissions are so minuscule on a global scale that it doesn't really matter what we would do and it's not going to change uh, the, the the climate on any growth. That's assuming that you believe in in, in man-made climate change anyway. So I guess mm. my question is, what why why are we not having this debate? And what is the agenda behind this sort of mad push to re renewables without considering the cost? Uh, Greg, that's a great question. I that's a question I've asked myself on a range of different issues, really in politics for the last you know, decade or more, I think we've, we've seen this sort of pattern of issues that once would have created this kind of national debate and things would have been picked over properly and analysed and come to a, you know, a sort of a, a conclusion, a sensible or otherwise, I suppose, but at least we would have debated it. We, we don't see that anymore in politics. And and I, I was only talking yesterday to a 
colleague here about my frustration with legislation that is just basically slipped under the rug. Um, you know, I, I think about there were some social policy issues in South Australia that were done in that manner. They were, you know, literally just tried to, uh, you know, be kind of pushed along without too much debate. I think this one is a bit like that as well. Um, the media has driven it. There's obviously big money involved in, in this transition, you know, this kind of wealth transfer from different types of, uh, of energy production. So there's that issue as well. But I think it's bigger than that. I think if from a society point of view, we just people aren't interested in debating as much as they are feeling these days. And I think so much of our decision making, so much of our public discourse now is about how it feels. Um, there'd be one school of thought, I suppose, if we were getting right into the sociological weeds on this, that would say, this is a product of the school system. You know, I think probably when, you know, people like you and I were in primary school, there was at least some, you know, I, I guess, discussion about rational thoughts. And, and I don't really know exactly the details of what goes on on school floors now. But what I hear is that, you know, in many instances, kids are really being promoted as being activists. Uh, and I guess that generation has come through into the university era and many of them now probably are even in the corporate world and are voting age and are whatever. So I'm concerned about the sort of stuff we're feeding in through the school system that's created this world where people are not interested in debate anymore. You know, there's this whole, and you know, I'm sure you get it as well. There's this whole feeling that if you are even willing to question the narrative, then you're somehow a bad human being. I mean, I remember that from 10 years ago when I went on the Adelaide City Council and it was all about renewable pushes and trying to find ways to spend ratepayers' monies on solar rebates and cycling and all this sort of stuff. I mean, it was a great big political statement more than anything. But if you were one of the people that stood up and said, hang on a minute, let's just look at the numbers, uh, you were immediately shouted at and called all sorts of names. And that's sort of what we've got in politics today. It's too easy for the mob to shout down those that are willing to speak against it. And, you know, that, that's that's a position for the general public. The general public has to get on top of this. We have to help them get on top of it. And we have to help them understand and make a connection between this push into renewables and their high energy prices, because really there is no argument about that. Absolutely. And look, you know, you, your point about the education system, I think is a is a fair one. And even in, in higher school education, there's not a lot of uh, discussion around simple concepts like cost benefit analysis and things like that, which goes to the to the crux of this. I asked before, is there a, is there an agenda at play? Because if I wanted to destroy a country, I would mm -hmm. destabilize their energy system. I would make it unreliable and I would make it very expensive. And it just seems to be completely insane that that is what the political class of this country is essentially doing under the guise of... Uh, um, doing the doing the right thing. So I think it's a legitimate question to say, is there an agenda at, at play here? Because it just seems so absurd when you look at the numbers and when you look at it from a rational perspective and take the emotion out of it. Yeah. Yeah, and look, I mean, I, I really, I mean, that's that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? I mean, if you wanted to weaken an enemy, you could start by weakening their manufacturing and their self-reliance and, you know, and I, and I have said in the chamber recently that I... I believe that the, the Chinese Communist Party have a, have a hand in a lot of these ills that are in our society. And you have to look at the way in which they use social media uh, against the West, children of the West, by virtue of the way they use it, or comparatively to where the way they use it in, in relation to their own youth. Uh, and to see that that feels like an attack. They have their fingerprints all over uh, the drug trade, the fentanyl trade in the US, and some of that here too. And you know, I mean, if uh, you know, if I were a cynic, I would say that the uh, the United Nations, the International Panel on Climate Change, um, 
you know, do play a very large role in uh, in the narrative. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, don't, I just don't know what the, what the play is here. But what I do know is that uh, it is weakening the Australian, uh, you know, economy. And uh, and that is a bad thing. We, we, we need strong energy production, you know, as I said, just domestically, but also from a manufacturing point of view. And everything leads from there. I mean, we really are very, very vulnerable from a strategic point of view as a result of this. So, look, I, I don't know. I don't know where that comes. I think it's probably a multitude of factors. I think on a political level um, here, I think people, you know, I think people are playing to the crowd. I think a lot of politics is, you know, there'd be people in in both houses here and in other parliaments across the country that don't think this is really as big a problem or a problem at all and that we're approaching it the right way or a combination of those factors, but are still going along with it because they think people uh, are with them on the street. So, I mean, I think a lot of the onus here is on the education process outside and making sure people are across the problem. Uh, I don't think people see it still yet. And I think that's it's a good point because if you look at what's happening in Victoria, Victoria have just banned gas in new builds, I think, from, from next year, which puts more pressure on the electricity system because more people will go electric. And at the same time, Victoria wants to take away its uh, coal-fired power station. So I just looked at the numbers this morning and over the past 12 months uh, for the uh, the NEM, the National Electricity Market, over the past 12 months, um, coal and I think it was coal and gas supplied 63% of the NEM's electricity needs. Uh, and solar and wind, on the other hand, supplied just 22%. We yeah. are meant to be, or under the, the government's uh, plans at the moment, we are meant to be at 82% by 2030. So what we've got is a situation where, where we're encouraging more electricity demand at the same time mm. as we're trying to cut supply. And it seems to me that there is not a chance of building the renewable infrastructure that we need in order to get anywhere near that 80% supply again what like are people not discussing these basic facts in 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 parliament and saying look there's not a chance that we're going to get here i mean chris bowen who's the the climate minister he constantly just trots out the renewables the lowest cost form of energy uh and we've just got to work harder to get there and it just seems that it is almost impossible and we're not discussing this absurdity of of a, of a target at the same time as we're trying to increase demand and cut supply yeah, I mean, we saw that in uh, California, I think, um, nine to 12 months ago, where uh, there wasn't enough power to power all the you know, electric cars, I think it was, or there was a, there was a, a shortage, you know, they were having blackouts over there several times, uh, and yet the government was telling people to go and buy those vehicles, you know, EVs rather than uh, petrol-driven, and you know, I, I, look, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I think the, the part of the problem is that it is very complicated area on one level. Um, I think the, you know, the actual um, into the weeds on this energy issue is a really, really detailed, difficult experiment. But the actual nuts and bolts of it are very, very simple. And, and the simple facts are where renewables go, power prices increase. Uh, we know that. Uh, and so I, I don't know. I think you asked the question, is that being prosecuted here? Yeah, there are some. There are some of us that will, will talk this language, um, you know, from everywhere, from, you know, Senator Matt Canavan, who's uh, been, a, you know, like I, a, a outspoken critic of the net zero agenda, even when it was our side of politics that were pushing it. I mean, I, I just, you know, I, I just don't have any time for the concept of net zero. It's not a real thing. Uh, the whole concept of reducing emissions like that really comes back to lining the pockets of, uh, you know, European um, 
elites and, and you know, kind of the, the green carpet baggers of the world, I, it just doesn't make any sense for Australia. If, you know, if your mission here is to put Australia first, then that just doesn't make any sense. Um, and you're spot on. I mean, we can't, we simply can't do it. It's absolutely extraordinary that it's not being put out in those terms. Uh, the other thing we haven't talked about that I think that is important, and I think it's, it's why it's so important that we have, you know, people doing the sort of stuff you're doing and, and others are doing in the kind of independent space is that we don't have the mainstream media who are talking about this stuff in the way they used to, frankly. I mean, you get snippets of it, yeah. um, but the main hardline media, hard, you know, the sort of the mainstream media are just not talking about it, not doing their due diligence on the numbers. I mean, there should be national scandals, this sort of self-harm of the, uh, the energy grid. And yet, you know, we seem to have feel-good stories about families that are putting in solar panels and dropping their prices. And, you know, I mean, that's great for them. But, you know, there's a bigger political issue at play here. And it just, as you say, it seems to be drifting through. And there's a sum of its parts. I think ultimately it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And, you know, we've, we've, we're, just, we're just not addressing the problem. Um, you know, and, and all of this for what? We're 1% of the world's emissions. It just doesn't make any sense. Exactly. You mentioned net zero before and the fact that, you know, it's just a, a bit of a pipe dream. Let's just put that aside for one minute and, and assume we continue down this path for at least the next 10 years. What does the approach to net zero look like for the Aussie economy? Like where, where do you see things things going? And, and I asked that question to sort of wonder at what point does the electorate really wake up and, and, and start to resist this? Because I spoke to Ian Plymer about it and he said that we will have to have a crisis before people wake up and understand what is really happening. Just wondering what your views are on that. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I sadly, I have long held that view myself as well. Um, you know, I, I, I just, I don't think, you know, it comes back to this issue of, of helping people join the dots on and making the correlation between high power prices and high, uh, you know, renewable uptake. Um, so I, I, I sadly, I tend to agree with him on that, but that, it's got to be our job in politics to push this as much as we can. You know, I mean, I, the, you know, it has to be, um, the, the message has to be there to be sent out. And, you know, I think we're increasingly seeing that. We, we, we do have, um, you know, I think held the line last term uh, with the Morrison government. I think there, there was some really good stuff that was done during that period. But, you know, ultimately, we're sort of in a position now where we have to just take the ball by the horns. If I had my way, I'd be building cheap coal-fired power everywhere, just like the Chinese are doing. By the way, the Chinese Communist Party are building hundreds of them. Uh, and over the last few years and continuing to do that, and their power is low, their manufacturing is high. Um, but I, I, I just, once again, I think this is such a difficult issue, or the perception is that it's such a difficult issue. It's not being talked about enough around the dinner table um, because people have to make that connection between their power bill and, uh, and what's being done. Uh, because, it's, it, you know, ultimately, you're quite right. I mean, to push towards net zero means we're, this is not going to get any better. Um, and yet, the irony is there are ways to do it. Nuclear power being one, um, there's a long run up to that. There's a whole heap of issues there, probably a different subject again. But, you know, renewables are not going to get us there without, as Ian Plymer says, uh, you know, we, what would it look like if we continue down this path? I asked him, he said bankruptcy. So you mentioned before it needs to become a bit more in the public consciousness and, and around the dinner table, and a lot of that comes down to leadership. And when you do get genuine leaders, people people follow and people sit up and take notice. So uh, question is, is is Peter Dutton a genuine leader on this issue for, for the Liberal Party to, to provide an alternative path? 
Yeah, look, look, I really think you'll find that that he's doing some great work at the moment. I mean, I, we we talk about this all the time here in Canberra, and uh, one of the things I've been really, really pleased with about the stuff that Peter's done has been the opening of the discussion on nuclear. Uh, and I look, I don't know where it hits, um, it, but it's certainly a very, very welcome and positive thing. I have to say, I, I've been to, I talked about it in my maiden speech to Parliament. Been a long time advocate of at least exploring it, you know, at least talking about it. Um, you know, we are we, those voices are there inside uh, the party room. I think uh, the Liberals and the National side, and there's a real willingness to do it. And I think there's a willingness in the community to understand it now. There's a, I guess, probably my generation. I'm 48 and above. Um, still have those images of Chernobyl. We're probably old enough to remember Chernobyl and. Uh, you know, even Fukushima, you know, but the younger generation are really across this and, of course, are very attuned to the issues of climate change and, you know, uh, and I, so I think are primed for this discussion. Uh, and as people would well know, it's really just a simple legislative amendment, really. There's a, there's a couple of lines in two different um, pieces of legislation. The main one is the prohibition in the uh, Environment Protection Biodiversity Act, uh, and that is a simple removal, a simple line which prohibits the generation of electricity from nuclear power. Um, now, what does it look like in the long run? Well, um, that's a great question. I mean, the, the argument that's always thrown back is that it's not cost effective. Uh, and that may well be with small modular reactors and generation four reactors. It may be or it may not be. I, my view is we let the market decide that as we should. And we get out of the way and let the market show us. Um, but one thing that's certainly clear is that many, many countries are adopting the kind of light water style, the, the previous generation as a sort of an interim measure. And um, that doesn't have to take as long as they say. You know, the other argument is that it take 20 years, we don't have the expertise. Well, you know, we've got the AUKUS deal now, we've got nuclear subs coming. There's a huge opportunity, particularly for people like us in South Australia, who sit on all this uranium and this stable geology. Um, you know, we should be digging this stuff up using it for energy, electricity uh, generation, and then storing it as well. And, you know, really, there's the, the economic opportunities from that are almost limitless. Well, the the, the whole um, idea around nuclear is that it's emissions-free. Um, That's right. So it seems, again, absurd that this is not being considered as a viable long-term solution if everyone is so concerned about the climate catastrophe that this is not a, a viable uh, long-term solution. Um I guess that that raises the question: Why is uh, the the labor side of politics so against it when it is clearly something that can do the job? And if you look at nuclear energy, just in terms of the physics of it, it's the most efficient form of energy that we've got. Nuclear power plants can last anywhere from sixty to eighty years. And the other part of this discussion that's never really talked about too much is that by the time we roll out our first lot of solar and, and wind farms. By the time we get to 2050, when we're supposed to be net zero, a lot of those will need to be replaced because they'll have reached the end of their working life. So these comparisons mm. with with nuclear versus renewables are again, I think, tainted or tilted at least by the lack of uh, uh, you know taking those things into account. So mm. um, it just seems absurd again that we're not talking about this as a serious thing. And, and back to your point earlier, where people are worried about things like Chernobyl. And Fukushima, if you if you educate yourself on on nuclear energy, you'll see that they were not necessarily uh, uh, catastrophes purely because of of the the, the power plant. Uh, Chernobyl was very poorly managed, uh, and mm -hmm. and Fukushima was contained, even though there were some issues 
um, around the very small containment area. Uh, over the life of nuclear energy that we've had uh, around the world since the post-World War II, I, I think there's been very few deaths uh, to do with nuclear energy. Whereas if you talk about deaths from coal mining or from you know a range of other things, that the, it's off the scale. So mm. again, we are not having uh, rational discussions about this. We're having emotional discussions, which are to the detriment of our long-term, uh, you know, long-term uh, prosperity. Yeah, I, I mean, the question, like the first question there was, you know, if it is, if people are serious, if we're in a climate emergency uh, and nuclear power provides an emissions-free and effective way of, uh, of of addressing that, why aren't we doing it? Well, to me, that's always been the issue that's built the cat on on the entire climate change debate, which is this is really an ideological debate. This is really about the left getting its way and it, it, this transition to renewables being completed. And, you know, as you said earlier, um, I mean, we don't know what the motivation for that is. I think it's an ideological one that, you know, the left play this ideological game is it's my way or the highway and there's no room for negotiation. That's just sort of in the printed in the DNA, I, I think. Um, but it really does make the point very clearly that we could be doing, you know, we could be addressing this without your, you know, without their... A renewable plan and the, and the sort of cost structure that goes with it. Uh, it's not cheap power. I mean, this is the, the myth that's peddled all the time by the proponents of renewable energy, people who, who tell you that it's the cheapest form of power out. Well, it is once it's in because, yep. you know, it's free to get the power from the sun and the wind blowing, but the capital costs associated with putting them in. And, and as you say, and as Ian Plymer says all the time as well, the replacement costs, you know, he points out that solar panels have a 20-year lifespan, but in reality, most times, if you're getting 12 to 15, you're doing well. And then what? What do we do with them then? So there's all sorts of problems that aren't being debated. A simple cost-benefit analysis, which any journalist that's straight out of, uh, you know, out of university could could do, would do this. But that discussion just doesn't seem to be happening. And um, you know, outside the the sort of the small fringe of the conservative media in this country, anyway. Uh, and um, you know, the answers are all there. I, I just sometimes wonder whether or not the proponents of this really want. Uh, a solution to the problem or whether they want their ideological agenda to just live on. I mean, without the ideological agenda, you know, if you get a solution for something, then you've got to find other issues to fight on and then you lose relevance. And climate change has been a, uh, a massive vote winner for the Australian Greens across the country. So, you know, sometimes you the, have to wonder. Yeah. It's the gift that keeps on giving. And, and certainly there's a lot right. of people on that, on that gravy train doing well from it as well. Final couple of questions. Uh, hmm. In terms of the coalition, obviously the the nationals must be quite involved in this from the perspective of the transmission system that needs to be built across, you know, extensive uh, networks of farmland and stuff like that. What's um, and I know you're you know you're a liberal senator, not a part of the nationals, but what what's right. the sort of vibe on on that front? Is because everyone in the renewables industry talks about trying to get social license to get this done. But I'm hearing a lot of pushback is is happening from the from the from the farmers who don't want the transmission lines across their their land. Yeah. What, what's what's yeah. your view on that? Well look I mean I, I I interestingly I listened to not 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 a national senator but but Senator Malcolm Roberts from One Nation talk about uh uh some of this uh you know putting out of transmission lines across virgin uh, bushland in in Queensland uh you know this this sort of almost decapitation of sections of the mountain and you know it, it sort of dawned on me how yeah, the politics is really a myth like the the myth is that the conservative side of politics are you know all for big business and all anti environment and we all want to see 
you know, natural forest being chopped down and, you know, oil pouring through the streets and we're all terrible people and all that sort of stuff. That's what the left will have you uh, have you here. But in reality, yep. these transmission lines are, are that are being built are scarring the landscape, are removing the habitat for local wildlife. And it, and it took Conservative Senator Malcolm Roberts to point it out while the Greens were cheering for the destruction of native habitat and the wind turbines that are basically bird choppers. You know, I mean, politics is just completely on its ear at the moment. I, you know, I don't, I don't, it's very hard to work out who's where and why. Um, and it's almost as though the left are now the establishment and are fighting on the front lines with the big corporates who are doing this sort of stuff. You know, look at the COVID period where the left were cheering on big pharma, which is just completely incongruous to me. I could never understand how we'd come that far. Well, we're sort of seeing the same thing now. We've got the conservative senators that are pushing for conservation. And I've always had the view that the right of politics is uh, the genuine conservationists. Most of the, the the most ardent conservationists I know are members of my party who are farmers, who are people that live on the land, you know, and, and, and are surrounded by the natural habitat. Um, and yet the left seems to have claimed that line. I, I think this transmission line issue was building in the same manner. And I think the pushback we're going to see about this is going to come from the conservative side of politics. It's funny you mentioned uh, that you were saying before you grew up in the 80s. I'm around the same age, just recently turned yeah. 50. When yeah. I was uh, when I was young, uh, rebellious kids were, were rebellious. Kids these days are, uh, are anything but. It's uh, everything has flipped flipped on its head completely. Um, yeah. Final question: uh, We're still a couple of years away from an election, uh, but given that. Obviously, there's you know there's going to be a big lead up to it. Do you think this energy transition will be the defining uh, argument uh, over this election, and and whoever has the the policies to at least give some sort of uh, not resolution, but some sort of uh, uh, I, I guess um, way for the electorate to to potentially do a little bit better from the the cost of living that they will be experiencing in the coming years? Is this something that the coalition is going to take to the election in a big way? Do you think? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm sort of guessing. I don't know. I mean, I had that discussion with Peter and the leadership team, but I, I think so. I mean, it's clear. I, I, I've been saying for the last forever, but certainly in the last 12 months, that really the three issues that, that face this country are all ease. They're uh, the economy. Um, they are uh, the education, which I think is a massive issue. This, we sort of touched on that earlier, but also energy as well. Uh, it's those three E's and, you know, energy and economy are sort of interlinked, but I think these are the battlegrounds on which we fight and win an election, um, mainly because you know I think there, there really is a bit of correlation between all of them. You know, we 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 need that education system fixed so that kids aren't getting brainwashed, so that we don't have this, you know, nonsense narrative that you know you're not here to learn, you're here to learn how to be an advocate. Um, that's just not helping us, and it's feeding into all sectors of our world. And we're seeing effectively, I think, a you know, kind of a political socialist takeover of this country, which I, I never thought we'd see. And I think it's getting very, very unsettling. Um, but ultimately, the, the the cost of living issues are the main issue. They should be the main issue at the moment. And um, look, once again, I think we just have to make the case for joining the dots on, on the cost of living issues and the energy transformation. My view is, and I'm no economist, but it is the central issue for us in terms of um, the, the driving up of the cost of living. Obviously, there are global factors as well. But I think the energy transmission and the sort of reckless stuff we've seen out of the Biden administration, shutting down the Keystone XL pipeline, amongst others, uh, you know, almost this war on fossil fuels that we didn't see under the Trump administration are really the 
the driving factor in uh, in a lot of these uh, a lot of these cost of living issues. So we've got to address those. And I, look, I I would love to see uh, us take, and I'm not preempting this, but I would love to see us take a, um, a sort of a nuclear policy to an election. I think it'd be a winner. The Minerals Council continue to tell us that the mood out there in the electorate has changed. And my view is, you know, politics is about leadership. You know, whether it has or it hasn't, we've got to find another way to uh, to return cheap power to the grid. And I think it's a I think it's a real it's a debate we have to have. Um, and let's see, let's see. I think uh, I think the Australian people are learning very quickly about how reckless this government's been. Absolutely. Look, on that note, I think we'll leave it there. Alex Antich, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Greg. It's been great to chat. Thanks for joining What's Not Priced In, your weekly source of unique ideas in the Australian stock market. If you've enjoyed this episode, please show your support by following us on your chosen platform and turn those post notifications on so you don't miss a thing. And uh, stay tuned for the upcoming episodes as we delve into new topics, new trends and new stocks. Thanks for your support. Hope to see you next week.